jelly and custard. Ooh, I don't think that would help my mood, but maybe something a bit more Mediterranean might. We're all used to hearing about how changing our diets can improve our physical health. But what about our mental health? Are there components of our diets that could really make a difference to how we feel long term? This is In Conversation from Medical News Today. I'm Dr Hilary Geit. We're going to spend the first few episodes of 2023 looking at the importance of nutrition. This month, can food reduce or even prevent the symptoms of clinical depression? Joining me today is podcast regular Maria Kahoot, the feature editor at Medical News Today. Welcome back, Maria. Hi, Hilary. Hello, everyone. Also joining us in conversation is Dr. Najaf Amin, a researcher and one of the authors of a recent paper that's identified about 13 different groups of bacteria from our microbiome that are associated with depression. Dr. Najaf Amin, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Also joining us is author and journalist Rachel Kelly. She herself has experienced severe depression, which she has since overcome. Part of her programme back to good mental health arose after her doctor's chance comment as she was leaving the consulting room one day to think about happy foods. Dark leafy green vegetables, oily fish and yes, dark chocolate. I'm going to enjoy this podcast. (laughs) She's gone on to research these happy foods further with Alice McIntosh, a nutritional therapist, and they've come up with some golden rules of what to cook in order to maintain your mental well-being. We'll hear more about that later. Rachel Kelly, welcome. Great to have you here. Likewise. Great to be on board. Rachel, can you kick us off by telling us about how you think your diet influenced your depression? Yes, so um, I had two severe depressive episodes in my 30s and I took the sort of medication route. I was treated by psychiatrists in hospital and with antidepressants. But as I recovered, I began to be interested in other approaches. And as you said in your introduction, my GP pointed me in that direction. GP for our US audience, that's a primary care doctor. Yeah, And she said, you know, had I thought of changing my diet? And I was riveted because I knew about diet for cancer and cardiovascular ailments, but I hadn't heard it for mood. And that was the start of the journey, really, and took me five years and working with a nutritional therapist. And how quickly did you get results? And how did you notice the changes in your mental health? Well, I think the first big change was psychological because there's a real sense of agency, So I think when you suffer from anxiety and depression, especially if you're in the hands of doctors, as you may well have to be, you lose a bit of that. And once you start making dietary changes, you know, you you eat three times a day or potentially more. So I think the first big change was a sense of empowerment, really. And I noticed that in my Good Mood Food workshops with others who suffer, a feeling that you could take the initiative. In terms of the actual changes beginning to kick in, um, remarkably quickly, This might sound odd, but even within a few days, I began to feel more alive, really, more more energy. That was the first change. What sort of changes did you make in your diet? I think that one of the huge changes, the biggest single change, was adding a lot more variety. 
one of the things Anna suggested straight away was I keep a food diary. And I found it rather painful, actually, because it's kind of pretty boring writing down everything you eat. But it's quite striking what comes up. And, and it was just the repetition. You know, I've got a family and it tended to be roast chicken on Sunday lunch and then it was fish pie on Friday. And, and my supermarket order was on repeat. So one of the biggest changes was really adding lots of variety. So if you take flour, I knew that brown flour is better for you than white flour, but I didn't know there was spelt flour and rice flour and all these different kinds of flour. And, and that's just in a microcosm of how variety came into my diet. Maria? I want to ask Najaf, so you and your colleagues, you studied the relationship between depression symptoms and the gut microbiome. What did you find in a nutshell? We identified 13 microbiota and those were associated with depression. I think most of them were protective. So there were decreased in depression and then there were a few that were increased in depression. Interesting part was all the ones that we have identified, they cluster into this order of clostridials, which is known in the production of butyrate, for instance, and also has been associated with several psychiatric disorders before. So this is what we see. Could you explain what butyrate does in terms of mood and mental health? Yeah, so in the gut microbiome, you have the short-chain fatty acid-producing bacteria, the three short-chain fatty acids, including acetate, uh, propionate, and butrate. And all three of them, they act as energy providers also, but they also have the ability to change the expression of a gene. Switch it on, switch it off. It doesn't change the genetic code, but what it does is that changes the levels of protein that a certain gene is producing. So indirectly affecting what your genes are giving you. So the most important part of the butrate is that it is responsible for maintaining the intestinal epithelial integrity. So if you eat lots of fibers, whole grains, fruits, your gut microbiota is really happy, especially the short-chain fatty acid-producing bacteria. They're very happy. They produce more short-chain fatty acids and the butrate and helps maintaining this intestinal epithelial integrity. So if you're not taking, let's say, enough fruits in your diet, what happens is that the number of short-chain fatty acid-producing bacteria, they go down, your intestinal epithelial integrity is compromised, and what happens is then you have the leaky gut syndrome where the bacteria from your gut, they start migrating into the body. And that creates an inflammatory response from the body and oxidative stress. So this is why butrate is so important. The short-chain fatty acids overall, and actually they are influenced by your diet intake. Fascinating. I want to come back to inflammation later, and it's interesting that you've brought that up so early in the discussion because it's actually quite key. But can I just backtrack a bit, Dr. Amin Najaf? What do you see the links are between Rachel's experience in relation to her depression and changing, first of all, the diversity of her diet and your research? Yeah, so... Most of the diet that she has mentioned, like whole grains intake, that is really one of the key factors apart from the fruits. So fruits, vegetables, and the whole grains, they already have been shown to improve the gut microbiome diversity. So they are really determining what you have in your gut. So if you're having healthy fruits or healthy, let's say, Mediterranean diet, that is known to give you better gut health while the Western diet is associated with bad gut health. 
So again, you have these short-chain fatty acid-producing bacteria becoming less abundant if you are taking the Western diet and not balancing it with fruits, for instance. So you can have meat, oh, it's okay, but you need to balance it with fruits and vegetables. So in a way, it really fits exactly with what Rachel has done and what Rachel has achieved through the changing of the diet. And if you see that there have been quite a lot of studies that have evaluated the diet intervention in relation to depression. And big meta-analysis are showing that diet intervention does actually help reduce the symptoms of depression, specifically in females. I'm interested just at the very precise point about variety, about introducing more things rather than constantly eating the same things, as well as you say, plants and vegetables. I just wondered in your research whether that is relevant, that you have a greater variety. I think when you're consistently taking, let's say, one type of diet, you might be reducing some of the chemicals that are being produced in the body and increasing some of the chemicals. So the diversity in your diet is taking care of the fact that you are not overproducing a certain chemical, for instance, in the body. But if I go to a specific diet, we know now through the research that there are some compounds present in these fruits and vegetables that are very, very healthy. Antioxidants, for instance, that you get while you eat fruit. And one of them is hippurate levels. So hippurate as opposed to butyrate that you mentioned earlier. So hippurate is a biomarker of diversity of fruit and whole grains in your diet. Yeah. And that has been consistently shown to be protective of depression. And it is causal. So if you go low on hippurate, you might develop symptoms of depression. And that hippurate is actually coming from fruit and whole grains. So we know exactly through which compounds this is happening. Yeah, I think it all fits because the greater variety was a greater variety, particularly of vegetables and fruits. That was where the more variety was coming from. And in fact, one of the learnings was to work seasonally as a kind of aid memoir to increasing that variety. So what fruits and vegetables were available at different times rather than just always choosing the same frozen peas or frozen beans. So I feel reassured because that fits very nicely. It helps me understand what was going on chemically, as it were. Coming back to you, Najaf, how do you get around the pitfall of what would be called reverse causality? So if someone's not feeling good, they're depressed, they don't have much motivation, their diet is poor. What's this pitfall of the chicken or the egg? How do you get around that? So we have had these meta-analysis of randomized controlled trials, and they all show that improving your diet or having a Mediterranean diet would improve your depressive symptoms. So that shows actually that it has an effect on depression. So it cannot all be consequence. Second, when we are studying compounds and the same thing we did with gut microbiome, we use here a method called Mendelian randomization to test for causality. And that method determines whether the exposure that you're testing, in this case, gut microbiome, is causally associated with depression or the other way around. Or is it depression? Because of course, we see that people, when they get depressed, their diet changes, sleep pattern changes, a lot of changes happening. We separate cause and effect using Mendelian randomization. We know, and the, the, the chemical compound that I talked about, hippurate, I've shown in my research that it is causally associated through Mendelian randomization. 
So one of the things, I mean, Rachel, you touched on it earlier on about the psychological effect of agency. So in the randomised control trials, it'd be quite hard to actually blind for good food. So, for example, Rachel, your your book, The Happy Kitchen, um, I picked out a green soup and I asked my partner to make it for us. He's the house cook. And um, I said, it'll make us both happy. So as soon as he finished his last mouthful, he said he was feeling great. No, and we've had it twice now, and he's like, "I'm feeling really happy." So, how do you get around this idea that food is so pleasurable when it's home cooked and it's fresh that you have an expectation of feeling? And how do you know it's not the placebo response that's really accounting for the changes that you feel? I'll come to you, Jeff, later. But Richard, start with you. Yeah, I I think it's a very good point. I think to some extent you probably can't completely rule out the fact that, as you say, you know, food is at the heart of our culture, connections, relationships. And actually, one important thing is, as Najaf was saying, that, you know, when you're depressed, sometimes there are so many changes that happen to how you sleep, how you eat. You might not feel like eating with somebody else, whereas actually, we know separately, feeling connected with others and sitting around a table is good for you. So it is hard with nutrition to pull out exactly what's going on. I suppose the way that I felt kind of comfortable with it in terms of really knowing that it had such an impact is that there are specific things that I started to eat quite a bit more of. Uh, I looked at specific research, for example, we touched on inflammation like the omega-3s and specific studies that linked eating things like oily fish, which my GP had mentioned. So more tuna, mackerel, things like walnuts, I always remember because it looks a bit like a brain. I did make these very quantifiable differences, a sort of before and after. So I think for me, that was the sort of proof. It was quite factual, setting aside, as you say, the emotional side, which is there. I don't think you can rule it out completely. And Jeff, what's your take on the placebo response? Healthy diet is not usually liked by the people. People like eating cakes, donuts, burgers, takeaway food. And if you tell a person to change a diet, and switch on to fruit, I think that will be a, a whole lot of hard work to changing their patterns because why they have developed depression, according to my theory, is that they have been on a poor diet, not, let's say, balanced diet, and they have been taking refined grains, they have been taking processed meat, all kinds of Western dietary patterns. So this is partly they're showing the liking. To have them switch to fruits and vegetables and fresh vegetables, I think you will not likely see a placebo effect here. Oh, so it's just me. (laughs) Like green tea, woo! (laughs) Yeah, because that's that's how you you like green foods, you like green leafy vegetables. But I know that people, when they're depressed, it's more like eating sweets and chocolates and burgers and fries. It's an interesting point, but I suppose... People present with depression in different ways. And in my own personal case, I didn't have a terrible diet. So I totally take your point that routinely, when you're miserable, what do you do? You have a slice of cake. And in fact, we address this by writing about comfort food and whether substitutes, which you could get an element of comfort with, but sort of trying to maintain a healthier diet. I suppose there is variety, you know, in terms of the reasons for their depression. And there were other stressors in my life which weren't just dietary, as it were. Yeah, so I agree with that. So it can be because of the fact that there are so many different causes of depression. And depression is such a heterogeneous disease that I completely agree. 
Maria? If I may take the discussion further, I was going to ask Najaf, to what extent can we actually change our microbiome or influence our microbiome through our dietary choices, do you say? Yeah, so to how much extent, I'm not so sure. But what studies have shown is that, yes, you change your gut microbiome if you start taking healthy diet or when they say healthy diet, they mean Mediterranean diet. There are lots of studies showing already that taking Mediterranean diet over a long period of time does change your gut microbiome. Yeah, so you just said, Najaf, that depression is such a complex condition, which I completely agree with you on that. So I think it can be quite a big claim to say that you can use diet to improve the symptoms of depression, to treat depression. So what would you say the clinical evidence is in support of that claim? I don't have clinical proof. The only I have uh, to show is randomized controlled trials. And there you have dietary interventions and they showed that, yes, diet does improve depressive symptoms much more significantly in women compared to men. At um, metabolism levels, we see differences in males and females. Why it happens, I am not sure. Maybe it's just like the physiology of the two sexes. It has to do with the hormones. This is interesting because women are at high risk of depression. And there's a recent study that looks at why females might be more at risk of brain inflammation than males. And it's a study in mice. But it was talking about the fact that often we blame it on levels of estrogen. But this particular study said that it's because of not just the amount of fat, but also the type of fat that females store versus male. Males tend to store a greater amount of visceral fat, whereas females have more subcutaneous fat. So they're saying subcutaneous fat might actually be protective in some ways versus visceral fat, which is more dangerous. So males might be more at risk of brain inflammation. So I don't know if there's anything in that, in terms of the mechanisms of depression as well. Yeah, so you can't rule that out. So it might very really well be, but we have yet to see in uh, humans because sometimes we, we see things in animals and we are not able to reproduce in humans. But this is something, of course, I can't rule it out. It may very well be. Maria, you brought up inflammation again then. Let, let's have a deep dive into inflammation. So starting with you, Najaf, what's the evidence about the role of inflammation in depression and how do you see the role of diet in that? So we already know that about 33% of the cases are somehow related to inflammation. But the thing that most of these cases of inflammation are actually having a comorbid condition, like for instance, diabetes or hypertension or any other disease that is causing the inflammation and then they develop depression. But in my own studies, two papers are coming out very soon. We have analyzed like hundreds of chemicals floating in the blood. And what we found is the energy metabolism, it's the oxidative stress that is disrupted. So in all pathways, the only pathway that we found through these chemicals is that energy metabolism and the oxidative stresses are disrupted. Can you just break that down into really simple language, that pathway that you mentioned there, just so that we can all follow? So your mitochondria are responsible for generating energy, right? And one of the key symptoms of depression is that you don't have energy. That's very interesting because when I read Professor Edward Bulwell's book about the inflamed mind, I think one of the reasons he got going on the topic of inflammation was he noticed that people who had flu were depressed and sad 
and they were lacking in energy. And from what you've been saying, what I'm understanding is that a low level chronic ongoing inflammation combines with a lack of energy. Is, am I right in that? Yes. So what happens is that when you are not having enough energy and also, let's say, your gut microbiota is disturbed or there is a leaky gut syndrome and then there is inflammation in the body, the mitochondria are the first organelles to get affected by that oxidative stress. And when mitochondria starts breaking down or, or when they are affected, not enough energy is being produced. And that's what I think that is happening, that uh, your body first is going through inflammation. The inflammation is killing your mitochondria and mitochondria, and then you are not able to produce enough energy. So what's causing the oxidative stress? Oxidative stress, actually the main cause is inflammation, which could be the leaky gut. Okay. Yeah. And that goes both ways. And stress causes a leaky gut as well as poor diet causes leaky gut. And what about stress, stress, just being stressed? Does that cause oxidative stress? Yes. So your stress disrupts your gut microbiome. And one of the things that you see is that when you are going to have a talk or a presentation or you're feeling nauseous, you are having like loose stools, sometimes you can have like loose stools as well. And that's why, because your gut is responding to the stress levels that you have. I think it's a really important point that though I am very keen on the nutritional interventions and good mood food, I have written other books about other psychological approaches. And I do think that you will have a, a better result if you combine nutritional changes with other psychological approaches, whether that's cognitive behavioral therapy or other ways of supporting your mental health. On its own, it, it's less effective than with other approaches. Yeah, I think why on its own it's not yet as effective as it could be is because we don't realize that when you say talk about fruits, banana may not be as healthy as the blueberries, for instance. So not all fruits are equal and not even within a particular fruit, you have fructose, you have mannitose, which has opposite effect of hippurate, for instance. You're taking sugars also. So not all foods are equal and not all chemicals in the foods are equal. So it's, it's a very intricate balance. And I think once we identify which ones of the compounds are actually responsible for relieving a person of depressive symptoms, I think that picture will become much better and much clearer. We're talking here quite a lot about these chemicals, obviously produced by the microbiome. Now, myself and Yasmin, another of our contributors from Medical News Today, we had a podcast when we were talking about mental health more in terms of an electrical imbalance and a circuit problem rather than the hypothesis of neurotransmitter imbalance. How does that more modern kind of paradigm around mental health being a circuitry issue fit with these ideas about chemicals from the gut? So one of the things is that the chemicals from the gut, most of them, they stay in the bloodstream and they do not cross the blood-brain barrier. Except for butrate. Butrate, for instance, is the one that has so many different properties that it can use it for energy, also increasing the expressions of genes. So you can think that when butrate crosses the blood-brain barrier, it can make epigenetic modifications to the genes there change the transcription levels of gene in the brain. Another thing is the oxidative stress. So if your brain cells are not having energy, they start dying. If the energy metabolism is disturbed, this is one of the, the new theories that 
It's the brain cells being lousy and not picking up the signals. And then here comes your electrical signals or electrical circuitry that you're talking about. But of course, I agree with you, but the chemicals that I'm talking about are not serotonin or none of those amino acids. I'm talking about other chemicals that are more related to oxidative stress and energy metabolism. Maria, did you want to come in? I just had a thought that maybe that could also explain why SSRIs, that's selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, the most common form of antidepressant. SSRIs don't really work very well for everybody, and it's more of a trial and error sort of process. Uh, yeah, so I wanted to, and I was interested in knowing, like a first-hand experience of a person like who has taken SSRIs, and how effective has that been in relieving the symptoms of depression, and has there been any side effects? Yes, so I took masses of drugs. <laughs> the first episode, I took prothiodin, which was an old-fashioned antidepressant, I also took sleeping pills because I couldn't sleep. Uh, I took benzodiazepines to help with the anxiety. And then I gradually got down to just being on the antidepressants. Um, the second episode, I was more just on antidepressants. And I moved to the sort of next generation of antidepressants and SSRIs. And I took citalopram for many years. Okay. Two, two things I would say. First of all, the side effects are absolutely terrible. Um, I put on a lot of weight, certainly first time around. But people say that with the... The next generation, the sort of citalopram's are not so bad at weight, but I had a dry mouth, terrible for libido, all of these things being very bad for your morale. Of course. Uh, you know, putting on weight, you feel depressed, not feeling, you know, connected physically, you feel depressed. So there were a lot of side effects. And the other big problem for me was coming off them. That was a huge problem. You know, you sort of chopping them into tiny little bits and having tiny little amount of powder and weighing it out. And I mean, that took me months and months and months. And I, and I was lucky. I had a lot of support and wonderful doctor, but it was a frightening thing. I mean, and I would come back into the virtues of the sort of nutritional approach is it, it's not frightening. Yes, this is what we are working towards, you know. So you have a therapy, which is just modulated by diet, or you have prebiotics or probiotics and no side effects. Yeah. I work with mental health charities and there's a lot of anxiety around medication. I mean, obviously there's huge hope that it's going to work and it obviously does seem to work for some people, but there are huge concerns about side effects and there are huge concerns about coming off it. You know, this is so important because using more dietary approaches could mean we could reduce the need for antidepressants or even reduce their dose. Now, Rachel, your work with Alice led you to come up with some cool ways to eat things to make you happier. And we've looked at the gut microbiome. Now, I'm really interested in dark chocolate. <laughs> and that has an impact on serotonin levels. But we've been saying that serotonin probably isn't the underlying cause for depression. Well, my understanding with dark chocolate was the one of its benefits is it's got some magnesium, but um, Najaf probably knows more about this than me. And, you know, magnesium is calming. I mean, obviously, you've got to watch the sugar rush. You want to have obviously dark because it's a higher concentration of the chocolate rather than all the other things and not too much sugar. So it's sort of in moderation. Najaf made a really interesting point earlier about motivation and getting people to make these dietary changes. And they're not necessarily what people want to hear. You know, they want to stick with their sweet treats. So you've got to be realistic. And if you say to people, and I know this from running my workshops, you know, that you're never going to ever have something sweet again. You're not going to get them on board. 
And dark chocolate also has an important amount of antioxidants, right? Yeah, it has lots of antioxidants in it. And when you take it, of course, it reduces the oxidative stress in the body, less inflammation, and hence better mood. Has it got magnesium too? Am I right there? There is a connection, my magnesium, and that connection actually goes back to the energy metabolism. Now, I will tell you that less levels of citrate are observed in the body. Uh-huh. And the levels of citrate are actually determined by the osteoblast, so that's in, in your bones. And bone health is depending upon vitamin D, magnesium, and zinc intake. So there is where the connection of citrate is coming from, and I've, it's in my paper again this connection of zinc, magnesium, vitamin D, and citrate levels. Wow. Rachel, what are your other three golden rules? Well, I've, I've got so many, actually. I've got 10, really, but <laughs> I, I won't give you them all. I suppose in terms of things that I think are easy for people to do, because rules sounds rather sort of judgmental, but I'm just trying to think of changes. I'd like to think of it more like that than rules, because judgment isn't really helpful for anyone with depression. But I'd say a few things that I do, which I think are easy and which people can do. So I'd say the first is just to remember the acronym CRAP. Easy to remember. So avoid the CRAP. So carbonated drinks, refined sugars, aspartamine and additives and processed meats and processed foods. The second one is this idea of variety. If you tell people to cut stuff out, and I have just contradicted myself by saying cut the CRAP, but balance that with adding things in because that's much easier for people to follow. So go to the supermarket and if you always buy one kind of bean, buy six kinds of beans. If you always buy one kind of flour, buy six kinds of flour. If you always buy one kind of oil to cook with, buy six kinds of oil. I mean, we, we mentioned the omega-3s. You know, flax oil is a good one for omega-3s if you don't like oily fish, which not everybody would like. So that's the second one is variety. The third one that I would say we haven't really talked about it is the probiotics and the prebiotics in terms of improving gut microbiome. The way I remember it is the probiotic. It's like the O in yogurt, probiotic. So that's things like your yogurt, your kimchi, your kefir, your fermented foods. And then the prebiotics, that's the sort of the dark green leafy veg that good bacteria likes to feed on. So put the two together. That would be the third change that I would make. The fourth thing I would do is back to the omega-3s. We've talked a bit about inflammation. And one of the reasons, if you look at the work of people like Professor Carmine Parianti at King's College London, he's looking at how omega-3s help with an anti-inflammatory response. So that's things like your, your tuna, your mackerel, your oily fish. Um, walnuts, a good one for omega-3s. Easy to remember because it looks like a brain. And I think the fifth thing I would say is that this is all fabulous stuff, but we talked a bit about stress and stress has an impact in terms of our microbiome, how well we digest things. So you've got to put in some other stress reduction methods as well, whether that's your therapy, your meditation, your mindfulness, your exercise, that's going to make the nutritional changes much more effective. I was going to ask Najaf, would you agree with what Rachel has said so far? Is this something that you would also advise? I completely agree with what Rachel has said. Well done. I paid you. <laughs> <laughs> don't put that, don't put that in the final edit. No. <laughs> no. But I, I completely agree with that. If you want to indulge in a piece of dirt, go ahead, eat it. But do compensate it with fruits, healthy fruits, healthy diet, vegetables, green leafy vegetables, and whole grains, whole meals. And uh, yeah, just balance it. 
And just to wrap up, have you got any other questions for each other? Now, Jeff, I'm fascinated what you're doing. And I, I find it fantastic because there hasn't been that much research in this field, as far as I can see. And when I did the book, The Happy Kitchen, which in America is called The Happiness Diet, but, you know, we were really kind of looking at the research. And it's so exciting that there are more studies like yours. Yeah, so actually my niche is to look at the molecular factors. And by looking into the molecular factors, I actually dive into diet just by, you know, it's what the data is telling me. Go towards diet if you're studying depression, because that's the ultimate therapy. Fascinating. I love it. Dr. Najaf Amin, Rachel Kelly, Maria Kahoot, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for inviting me here. Yeah, thank you. It's been great. I've learned so much. It's been fascinating. Thank you all for coming and thank you for the amazing discussion. And of course, thank you for listening. You can read more about nutrition and mental health on our website. That's medicalnewstoday.com. We'll be in conversation again in February asking if diets can help with chronic pain. See you then. I'm Dr. Hilary Geit, and this is a High Vis Radio production for Medical News Today.